Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies Markets Show. I'm John Human, the editor of the Investors Chronicle. I'm joined today by Ian Smith, who is the Deputy Companies Editor and this week the News Editor. Hi John, how are you doing? Not too bad, yourself? Too bad. Good. I'm joined by uh, Daniel Liberto as well. Uh, how are you doing, Daniel? Very well, thanks John. And you've written a cover feature this week. That's right. On the cars. Yep. Subject dear to my heart of late because I've bought a new one. And uh, we'll talk all about that in a minute and uh, the wonderful things my car can do and how investors can make money from this amazing advancement in technology in the automotive industry. And over in the uh, control room, Graham Davis. How are you doing, Graham? Hello, John. Very well. Thank Good. you. Good. It's been a while since um, you've been I know. It feels, like it's, it feels, feels like ages, but yeah, I'm glad do you to remember be back. How to, you remember how to do it? Just about. Good. Yes. Okay. So, what's been going on this week? Busy week uh, on the banking front, Ian. Busy week on the banking front. The big news was HSBC considering a move. Are they really, um, though? I mean, are they really? Well, Hong Kong is one of the places that's been talked about. Uh, but uh, I think I read a stat that HSBC's balance sheet was nine times the GDP um, of Hong Kong. So, yeah, it, it'd be a huge bank to be kind of traveling there. Very it, big stress on the regulator. But it's from there. I mean, yeah, this yeah, is where, yeah, yeah. where it began its corporate mm. life, really. But the kind of regulatory fines that were, and costs that it would have to move, some people think it's just sabre-rattling. The HFBC itself pointed to kind of regulatory and structural reforms uh, since the financial crisis, which is probably a euphemism for talking about the kind of litigation and conduct charges. And we've seen a lot of that this week. So today, RBS said that a further £856 million it had set aside for litigation and conduct charges. Yesterday, Barclays, £800 million on foreign exchange and £150 million on PPI compensation that was set aside in the first quarter. So it's just ongoing woes for the banking sector. But is that, I mean, that's not a surprise. I mean, we've written about the, the banking fines and uh, the potential for more for some time. And, you know, we, we, so we knew, we've known for a while that more fines, more redress was on the way. So, But if you look at the way the share prices responded today, um, I think the size and yesterday, the, some of the sizes of those extra one-off costs have kind of surprised the market a little bit. We knew those fines were coming, but the fact that they're still so sizable um, has been right for, for debate. And, um, you know, it's probably leading to some of this uh, discussion about where's the most cost effective place to be headquartered at the moment for HSBC. Uh, Standard Chartered have said uh, it's also something that bank is keeping under review, although they've said that's not really a change in their position, but it's something that they they do keep under review. So uh, this big question of where's the most profitable or cost um, sensitive place for a bank to be operating or headquartered. There's also, sorry to butt in here, Ian, I mean, is there not a political element to this? I was going to say, there's an election coming up. Winning an election campaign, (laughs) these, the banks like to throw their weight around and and quite often in the run up to elections, we see these sort of threats, sabre rattling to try and, you know, influence. Yeah, definitely right. And we've seen, you know, politicians falling over each over mm. themselves to um, say that they're going to be tough on the banking sector. George Osborne said in the budget, it's time for banks to pay their fair share. Obviously, um, Labour Party, Labayab Miliband, have been very kind of t- talking tough on the big banks, saying we want to create at least two new challenger banks, further break up the banking market. Uh, the rises in the banking levy, so the increases in the banking levy, have really been seen as... Um, kind of forcing some of these banks to reconsider things. Um, so it's not a great time to be a big UK bank. You know, the tough times continue. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's two things you've mentioned there. So tax is one, because um, as far as I understand it, if HSBC were to relocate its headquarters to Hong Kong, there is a massive, massive tax saving that it could potentially generate there. Yeah, that's one argument. There are some, I, I read earlier that there might be some kind of exit costs of it leaving from the UK, put on it by UK um, regulators. Um 
Stephen Wilmot, the company's editor this week, has written it's taking Stockholm about HSBC, talking particularly about costs and saying that um, the cost-to-income ratio, which is a key measure of efficiency for banks, um, has actually risen, which is not a good thing for them, um, and is quite high compared to uh, other banks in the sector. So it's saying that cost uh, management is something the bank needs to look at. So perhaps that's a factor in there if they can reduce their costs by moving to Hong Kong. Um, and so do that. Okay. Was it not a couple of weeks ago HSBC were threatening to move to Birmingham? I think they offered a, <laughs> open an office in Birmingham, but I don't know if they were threatening to actually move the centre of their operations there. Yeah, this is a bit more drastic, I guess. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. Okay, so banks, um, tough times continue there. I mean, ter- I mean, in terms of the underlying trading for banks, so that I mean, that seems to be pretty steady. I mean, Barclays... Yes. underlying business seems to be doing okay. Yeah, it's adjusted pre-tax profits were up 9%, I believe it was. Um, so that recovery story is still there. So yeah, you're right. It's not um, time to kind of hold your hands up um, and worry too much yet. And that uh, was our, one of our tips of the year mm, this year. And it's doing yeah. okay. So far. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, and, but it's, and it's not just UK banks. Obviously, Deutsche Bank paid this record settlement to US and UK authorities for uh, over allegations around LIBOR manipulation. Um, so that was $2.5 billion, I believe, mm. uh, that they had to pay. Um, so it's not just the UK. And yeah, and there are um, good arguments that this kind of recovery story is still there for Barclays. Um, RBS have probably got a bit of a tougher time. But at the moment, we still think that that's, um, that restructuring progressing really uh, as expected reasonably let's go back to the point about Miliband's desire to create more challenger banks the sector seems to be doing all right in mm. that respect already and what does he want to happen that isn't already happening yeah it's it's heavy on rhetoric and light on detail as perhaps to be expected in terms of breaking up banks so i had one banking analyst saying to me it's much easier to create a new bank than it is to break away a bank from an old bank because of the infrastructure um and the cost of doing that and the complexity of doing that um so it's definitely easier said than done saying oh you know we're going to break up the banking sector um and that yeah as you say all the the benign credit environment means times are very good for challenger banks as we've discussed on a couple of occasions and you've, i mean you've read about several of them in the past few weeks and they, you know they're, they're offering uh, loans to small businesses offering loads of car finance which is something that we'll potentially come on to later daniel um so we've, yeah we've, I mean, we've tipped a couple of these as well tipped, ian yeah. i think himself has yeah tipped. and we always have this on chart the of the week in here looking at consumer credit and they've got some data that graham pulled together uh, for us um, and it just shows that that appetite for consumer credit is increasing all the time so there's mm. definitely the challenger banks set to benefit from that okay Appetite for consumer credit is increasing, but there's been some signs this week that economic growth is perhaps losing some steam. Exactly. A couple of disappointing um, figures for Q1 uh, growth of the UK economy grew at just 0.3% in the first quarter. And I think particularly uh, construction fell. Uh, financial services growth of that slowed. Um, so uh, the US also uh, disappointed with 0.2% growth. Uh, I think the strength of the US dollar was suppressing exports there. Um, so, yeah, a couple of key economic I mean, in the, U- the US figure was a big surprise, wasn't it? That, the markets really took fright at that yesterday, didn't they? Yeah, definitely. That was just as we were going to press. Mm. It was quite big news. Mm. Mm. Well, it might have been a surprise to some because there's been a lot of talk about the strength of the US economy and how that may feed through into imminent rate rises. And we've been kind of sceptical of that argument. Mm. And I think we've been right to be sceptical of that argument. It doesn't come as a massive surprise to me that US growth has perhaps not been as one directional uniformly powerful as perhaps previous figures have suggested. But, exactly right. Just further pushes back expectations of a rate rise in the US. It feels like a bit of a game to me. We, we've questioned a few times whether, you know, this sort of mega bull run in the dollar, that was going to hurt at some point. And it looks like 
the past quarter it has begun to hurt exports well down mm. um, yeah you know the, 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 that, that strong strong currency does come back to bite you in the end yeah and absolutely absolutely yeah well traffic does not move in one direction forever no there you no. go okay uh what else we got in uh the news this week uh, some goings on in uh, in British boardrooms. Uh, Whitbread, yeah, Whitbread's uh, chief executive Andy Harrison is stepping down, and um, we've written about um, Whitbread's results this week in the company section. Uh, and really, it's, he's left behind a company that's doing very well. Obviously, the two uh, main businesses we associate with Whitbread that drive the profits are Premier Inn and Costa, mm. and both are doing well. Both are expanding. And there have been some rumours that um, Whitbread might sell Costa, but we really see no reason why they should do that. Um, Costa is a business that provides a huge amount of revenue for them, um, huge amount of growth. And, and without uh, without Costa in there, really, uh, company's editor Stephen Wilmot said to me earlier that they perhaps should just rename themselves as uh, Premier Inn. I mean, what 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 else would be left in terms of sizable businesses in that group? Having having said that, I mean, in the past, so British Gas being a great example, companies have created a lot of value by by splitting themselves up. And so, you know, if you've actually got two very strong businesses within one, Premier Inns and Costa Coffee, there is there is potentially a, an argument in terms of creating shareholder value that they may be better off uh, as entities in their own right. Mm. But there's one one business we like in Whitbread, isn't there, Greg? Tay Barnes. Tay Barnes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't so want to go to a Tay Barnes. <laughs> I've never actually been to one, but yes. Um, do you know Tay Barnes? I don't. Oh, Tay Barnes. It's basically uh, an all-you-can-eat buffet for a very small amount of money and where's the a large amount of food what did we work out the nearest one was uh, Coventry is Coventry, Coventry I think from here yeah yeah they uh, tend to be dotted around Coventry. dotted around the north yeah yeah so uh, mm. anyway no Whitbread's interesting um, another another chief exec who's had some trouble this week Sainsbury's Mike Coop um, Mike Coop has been sentenced by an Egyptian court uh, to a two year prison sentence over uh, some business dealings that go back 14 years before, just, and he wasn't actually at the company at the time which seems it, just particularly mad. unjust. It's mad. As we yeah, say, we're looking I, at I, his picture. There, there is a, there is a master criminal. If ever I saw one, <laughs> a criminal mastermind with a with name the, badge. With the name badge. <laughs> Hello, I'm Mike. Um, okay. Um, yeah, poor, poor Mike. Uh, I'm sure. He, I don't he think he'll be holidaying. Any consequences there. To no, come, I don't think really. he'll be holidaying in Sharm El Sheikh this summer, though, will he? No, never mind. Never mm. mind. Okay, so what else we got on seven days? Uh, shenanigans going on in uh, the Greek government. So Varoufakis is uh, has been uh, shuffled to one side. <laughs> He's on his on his motorbike. On his bike, clear <laughs> off. Uh, Swedish QE. Just a bit more. Just a bit more QE. If, bit in more case QE. the markets hadn't had enough in Europe. Indeed, which, which again suggests that, that economic growth is not quite as entrenched as any, everyone thought it perhaps was. And Twitter had a, a pretty problematic week. Um, some results got released early, which weren't quite as uh, palatable as the market hoped. Yeah, a mixture of the weaker than um, expected results and earlier than expected publication mm. of said results. Mm. The irony is somebody tweeted them. Oh, <laughs> the irony. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, and uh, we've got the election coming up, and I, I know it's your first story in seven days is, is around the election. I guess we are no closer to knowing what the hell is going on there and what the likely outcome is going to be, and therefore what the implications for the UK stock market are going to be. You said it all, and I had to remain my very neutrally worded uh, seven days uh, nib there on the election. Yep, uh, no party has demonstrated um, a clear lead across all the polls. Um, I think everything's still within the margin of error. Um, there's an interesting survey out that I uh, mentioned from St. James's Place, uh, the, the wealth manager, uh, that kind of half, just over half of its clients were concerned about the impact of the election. 
but probably more tenderly, more than two thirds were concerned about the state of the UK economy. So really, even for the other uh, high net worth investor, um, the economy is looming larger in the mind than the election right now, which probably tells you a little bit about the reaction in, in the markets or in, among investors to what's going on. Hasn't mm. been a huge impact yet. Mm. You might cover it in a couple of weeks. We know what's happening. Okay, um, just talking about tips of the year. I mean, we, had, we talked about Barclays, which was the tip of the year. Another tip of the year, uh, Pace, has had a really interesting week. Um, Graham, you might have uh, picked up on this story. Um, Pace, the set-top box maker for cable uh, digital TV, got a takeover bid. Indeed, it did. Yeah, pretty much a knockout uh, bid, John, worth £2.1 billion from American um, business Aris. Um, it's a mixture of cash and shares. Pace shares shot up in response. They were still at the time, uh, Daniel wrote this, trading a little bit below the, the, the value of the offer, but uh, it's difficult to see a, a rival bid coming in. Mm, so uh, but I think Daniel said, oh, wait, you know, just, just sit on it for now and see what happens. If it happens to me, I'll take the money. Mm, mm. <laughs> there you go, I'm a coward. Yeah. Okay, um, thank you for joining us, Mark Robinson. Did you have a nice lunch? Uh, it was a constructive lunch. Oh, a constructive lunch. Is, yes. that, is that what a two-and-a-half-hour lunch is called these days? Okay, no, it was. It was very constructive. Okay, so, Mark, you've, um, you, you're the star of the show this week because you've launched a new column in this week's magazine. Well, yeah, I, it's a, basically a commodities monthly, and it, and it occurred to me some time ago that uh, we, we tend to cover commodity stocks on uh, sort of an ad hoc basis in the magazine, really. So I wanted to sort of bring in a, a regular update on uh, price trends, really, with that, you know, that, that our readers will need to... Not everyone pours over the... Uh, the reports I do every day. When I read this, it wasn't quite what I expected because I only saw it when it was presented to me on page. It will probably evolve as well. It will probably evolve. But, you know, I was expecting something perhaps a little bit more sort of plain vanilla. Here's what's happening with prices and here's what may have caused it. But it's, it's a bit more than that, I think. Yeah, I mean, in, in this first issue anyway, I've covered a number of uh, what might be termed sort of esoteric uh, stories on the market as well. But uh, with an eye on sort of future trends as well, I mean, that's that's part of the idea uh, this isn't sort of looking back, but we're looking where we are in the market and where we might be in uh, a few months' time, perhaps in a few uh, years' time. Um, there's one article in here in particular which I found quite interesting. It's, I, I can't take any credit for it, obviously, but it was based on uh, a report from uh, uh, Wood McKenzie uh, from their uh, chief Asia economist, Cynthia Lim. And uh, it talks about uh, China's uh, uh, eastward or rather westward expansion away from uh, the uh, the coastal areas which have been driving the economy up until now the thinking is as uh, China transitions to a, a more consumer-based economy that uh, the primary the heavy industry and uh, tertiary industry will move further inland mm. uh, and Chinese demographics uh, support this view as well and of course, uh, Chinese government policy is going to aid uh, the movement of uh, um, monetary and, and physical and human uh, capital as well. So it, it feeds into our general theme that you know China is far from being a busted flush, and we might see a, a secondary uh, growth surge as a result of this. And of course, that has that can only have. Um, uh, positive implications for uh, commodity markets in the future. Well, I mean, iron ore, I mean, looking at this graph you've got in this week's issue, iron ore has been absolutely hammered. And I guess it's what happens in China that's the main uh, driver of the iron ore price. Yeah, and, and nobody's uh, betting for any, for any uh, near-term recovery there at the moment. Uh, China had uh, excess uh, steel-making capacity, which it's uh, gradually reducing. 
inventory levels are, are still sort of uh, on the high side as well. So we, we're not going to see any real uh, near-term recovery there. And uh, the iron ore miners have obviously taken this into account. Uh, BHP, for instance, have um, put back a, an expansion project at the Port Hedland uh, uh, export base, and this will uh, reduce uh, near-term capacity growth, and it may encourage other producers uh, to follow suit. Um, one thing that will be supporting the market in, in the coming months and years as well is that a lot of uh, the uh, the second tier uh, iron ore production a lot of that's in endangered because of uh, the dominance and relative uh, cost advantages that uh, BHP, Vale and uh, Rio enjoy at this time. So so basically what we're saying is look out for the low-cost producers because they're going to be able to, to survive in what's going to be a, a constant low-price environment. But the long-term story of uh, economic growth in China as the economy as a whole moves to the interior in, in, in terms of the heavy industry yeah. uh, will we'll drive them. Well, exactly. I mean, that, that story, uh, I think in the magazine in the past as well, we even though there's been a lot of uh, negative talk about Chinese growth prospects, I, I think we, we still take the view that, you know, where, where's growth coming from? It, it's still an emerging market. So, I, in fact, I was, I've just come from talking to to um, uh, investment bankers, and that's not Cockney rhyming, rhyming slang either. <laughs> but uh, they were talking about Chinese capital incursion in, in Africa as well. And, and it's still these emerging markets where we're going to see um, uh, the growth in the future and uh, Speaking from the point of view of uh, someone who is growing tired of uh, secular stagnation, all the strength to it. Mm. Well, indeed, and this, I mean, this is an argument you've talked about with regards to the oil price as well, that, that actually energy demand is not falling. Um, and while the oil price may have suffered somewhat due to uh, oversupply... The long-term story for, for energy, oil, gas is, is up and up and up. Yeah, I mean, uh, whoever you speak to, they're, they're generally confident that uh, uh, demand will grow by about a fifth over the next 20 years. And uh, people aren't, okay, uh, unconventional fields are, are being discovered, large unconventional fields, but uh, readily accessible um, traditional oil fields. No one's finding no, no one's finding any big fields any longer. Now, what's the oil, Brent crude today? Sixty six dollars a barrel. Well, it's t- yeah, it, it's ticked up a little bit this week, and and the and the hedge funds are betting on uh, on a, an average price of about uh, sixty dollars a barrel through the remainder of this year. It may well be higher. Than that, which I think you predicted. A f- well, yes. Yeah, so, oh, so, so, uh, well, actually, I, I was predicting even a little bit higher than that, to be honest. It might but still get there. It, it may. It may well. Um, but that's a big. I mean, that's a big move from from those lows. I mean, we're talking thirty percent plus already. And, and and the significance of this is is twofold as well. Obviously, it has advantage for the oil companies themselves. But um, a, a period, if companies believe that we're going to see a period of relative stability in oil prices, it's then when they might go on the M and O trial you know in the in the wake of uh, the bg group deal mm. uh but because no one's going to enter when prices are volatile um you know you can't get buyers and sellers meeting up when when, when the market's like that so we, we may begin to see uh, a little bit more consolidation thank you mark um i've already noticed the price starting to tick up at the pumps since the uh the oil prices started to, to rebound from its lows um and that's something that that leads us neatly on to to your feature this week daniel which is uh driving cars Absolutely. And the technology that goes into it. And one of the biggest things um, that I think people, motorists, are looking for these days in their vehicles is, is fuel efficiency. Yeah, that's uh, one of the uh, trends that's uh, driving growth in the sector at the moment. Give us an idea about so, you know, what's, what's happening here, what companies are actually developing this technology, which is making 
you know, motoring that much more efficient. There's been um, growing concern about air pollution and clean air, and that's um, that's become a, a legislative uh, factor. Um, and basically, there's a lot of engineers involved that have kind of been looking at creating technology to reduce uh, to reduce carbon dioxide mm. um, being emitted uh, from these cars. So you have uh, numerous uh, different types of uh, technology. Uh, one that springs to mind is uh, Johnson Matty's made a killing from its catalytic uh, converter technology, which has been around for some time. But I think because the legislation just keeps on evolving, there's just always more opportunities to kind of bring out new technology to, to fit the latest legislation because it's just becoming more and more strict. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've just bought a new car. Uh, as readers of the magazine will no doubt be uh, painfully aware. Um, but it, I mean, the miles per gallon these things do these days is just incredible compared to you know a car I had that's ten years old. I mean, it's you know kind of talking double the mileage on these things. Um, and this, I mean, this is really interesting. I guess this is driving the the actual car purchasing market as well, which uh, our colleague Julia wrote about in the feature. Yeah. So so people are are very happy to buy a new car because they know that they'll they'll make such a saving on the running costs. Yeah. Definitely. And, you know, you've got that and you've also got the kind of all this extra new content and people wanting cars, you know, um, and they're, they're looking um, not just of kind of fuel efficiency, but they're also looking for kind of Internet stuff. Yeah. Infotainment, as they call it. My car, my new car has a camera that looks out the back. So uh, and it's got little guidelines that tells you uh, how to park the thing, mm-hmm. um, and it's Bluetooth enabled. There's probably a more computing power in that than the, than there is in actually my desktop these days. I mean, which companies are benefiting from from that aspect of uh, of the development of car in car technology? Well, you've got uh, companies like Laird. Um, there's one company that I talk about, uh, Imagination Technologies. That, um, at the moment, I think it's only creates about. 5% of its revenues from, from the auto section. And we think that's going to rise. But that's likely to rise. And I think management there are kind of very aware of the opportunities and they're looking to kind of up their exposure. Well, one of the things you mentioned in the feature was whole, I thought was really interesting and really chime with uh, you know my decision-making process uh, as a car buyer was whether I buy a diesel or whether I buy a petrol car. Because, mm. you know, the, the diesels are perceived to be much more efficient obviously they do a lot more mileage per gallon but there are increasing worries that that actually diesel might not be the most environmentally friendly technology after all and that that new developments in petrol technology petrol engine technology um might actually render diesel obsolete yeah that's right so before i think there was this big kind of focus on diesel engines producing less uh, carbon dioxide and lately there's been some data out that's kind of rejected that claim um, there was a study out saying that the um, emissions caused um, as many as 60,000 deaths a year in the UK, which is quite worrying. Uh, and then you had the French government, which uh, pledged to progressively uh, ban diesel vehicles. So it's been a massive kind of shift in focus now from looking at kind of diesels as being kind of cleaner to actually thinking, hang on a second, they're, they're not uh, so effective in this regard. And so... You know, there's been a worry for for companies like Johnson Matty that, that they do the catalytic converters. Yeah, but they do those for petrol cars as well. Yeah, they do, but they make more money from the the diesel side of things because it's a lot more complex. The uh, the process is a lot more complex. But um, as the industry constantly evolves, um, you know, engineers like that will always find find ways to make money and to to keep up with whatever demand there is. Yeah, I mean, actually, one company I've I've always liked uh, is Ricardo. Mm. Uh, and they're uh, like a consulting engineer. Yeah, and they, right. they've been at the forefront of this technology. I mean, they're yeah. a, a, over a hundred years old. They company, yeah. so they've been they've been in this industry for a long, long time. You know, since the very beginnings. And uh, I presume you've looked at this company uh, in, yeah. in the past. And uh, what, I mean, would you make a Ricardo? I think they I think they're fantastic. It's a fantastic company. Um, shares have done really, really well over the past few years. 
And that's also linked to the fact that they've got this massive focus on, on green technology. Yeah. Uh, and that's, like we were saying, that's that's a massive trend at the moment. You know, there's a massive awareness and focus on, on kind of how to reduce air pollution. And I, I think that's uh, even true. That. I think that's even true in some of the growth markets like China, um, which actually is China the, the biggest single car market yes, in the world yeah. now? Which is amazing, really. Yeah. And, you know, when you consider actually the proportion of the population that actually drive, it's still quite small yeah. uh, overall. So, yeah, I know, I, you know, that even countries like China that are obviously generally perceived as not having so much of concern over environmental issues do care. And uh, this suggests very big markets for these guys. Yeah, no, uh, regulation over there is definitely tightening. And, you know, everyone always talks about the pollution there. So mm. that's going to be a massive, massive market to kind of to go for. One of, one of the other things that I'd, I'd not really thought about, which you mentioned in the feature, is motorbikes. Yeah. Motorbike. I mean, I know nothing about it. I've never, ever ridden a motorbike. But this is a big market too. And, and, and actually, probably not as far down the technological road as cars. Yeah, no, that's uh, definitely correct. Um, a lot of people are saying that when it comes to like electronical content, for example, there's very little on motorbikes, yet sales are, are really big. I mean, in, in, in kind of developing countries, motorbikes are, are, are really, really popular. And there's kind of likely to be this kind of push to, to, to make them as sophisticated as cars are. And I think one of the, the points I'm making in the future is um, there, there's some legislation coming out um, regarding anti-lock braking systems okay. that the EU is pushing out from 2016. Because bikes are involved in quite a lot of accidents. Yes, exactly. And there's a concern about that. And it's just about kind of making it easier to brake, basically. And that could be a big driver for companies like Victrex. And um, Big Trace making polymer that goes into the, the, to the breaking material. Yeah. Okay. And um, imagination technologies as well have uh, something to do there. So I think it's always very interesting to kind of keep an eye on the kind of latest legislation because safety is also always a concern uh, in the auto sector. And these companies, you know, they, they're constantly coming up with new technologies. Okay. What about, what, a, what about driverless cars? They don't sound very safe. I'm no. a much safer driver than a computer, surely. <laughs> I think I think there's still kind of maybe we we'll have to wait a while before that becomes a reality. Um, you interviewed someone who suggested that uh, that this mm. was uh, so the, the idea that we would have driverless cars on the road in short short order was mm. simply not the case. It would be more like twenty to thirty years yeah. before you know before the technology had really evolved to the point where a it was possible and b people trusted it. Yeah, definitely. Um, but but I mean there will be aspects of of computerized driving. Uh, that will come in much more quickly than that. It's, yeah, it's... I think that's the point. I mean, without kind of getting too carried away, there's gradually um, various kind of technologies that um, kind of take parts of that and um, are being uh, used already. And there's talk about things like automated collision avoidance, uh, lane change correction, uh, deceleration tools, those kind of things that are really kind of driving safety mm. in cars. And um, they're kind of growing things that we are expecting to appear um, gradually over the next few years. Auto limiters sounds interesting. Mm. So uh, regulating the, the the speed at which cars can drive in certain areas. I think I mean that sounds like a very very good idea. Yeah. People still people still speed. Yeah. And it's uh, obviously uh, speeding in you know pedestrianised areas that causes enormous amounts of yeah. accidents still. Okay. Well, thanks, Daniel. It's uh, I mean it's a fascinating feature and it's really well illustrated. I know you you went to great lengths uh, to produce this diagram about which companies are involved in all aspects of the production of a car. It's fantastic. Yeah, and no, I hope you uh, really enjoy it. Good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, so uh, thank you, everyone, uh, again, for your contributions this week. Thank you, Ian. Um, thank you, Mark, for joining us eventually. It's a great first start to the Commodities Monthly. I think we'll uh, 
in a market which is very much a, a market for contrarians at the moment, I think you've got to know these off-the-beaten track stories. And thank you, Graham, over on the desk there. Thank you, John. Um, lots in the magazine this week. We've got a, a feature from uh, from our regular contributor, Anthony Garner, uh, who's talking through how investors can uh, basically get started in quant investing. And he's talking through some of the tools that uh, that are available there that private investors can access uh, to really help you backtest some sort of theoretical models that you have. Uh, talking to tools, um, Algie Hall's taken a bit of a, a departure in this week's stock screen. He's, um, he's reviewed a new product uh, from our friends over at uh, Ionic Information. SharePad, which is the, the web-enabled equivalent of ShareScope, and he's he's used their stock screening filters there to show you readers, uh, and it's a it's a regular question that we have how you can replicate what LG does. He's given you uh, uh, some pointers as to, to how you may be able to achieve that with SharePad, and uh, our trader Nicole Elliott has uh, has taken a look at the Hound of Hounslow and what he was actually doing. I, you know, I'm sure we've all uh, enjoyed the uh, the front pages that have been generated by this story, but but what Nicole has done is is used her very very deep uh, experience of uh, of trading and uh, the uh, the futures markets to explain exactly what he's accused of doing. It's a fascinating fascinating read um lots more in the magazine the usual tips uh results uh comments and obviously we'll be doing a personal finance podcast this week too so i'll leave them to discuss that thank you very much again for your time um pick up the magazine four pound fifty in all good news agents you recognize it by the sort of futuristic night rider car bonnet type thing on the cover this week uh thanks again everybody and uh, see you next week goodbye even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.